0: Welcome to The Puck, Venture Capital and Beyond, a show that examines the changing landscape of our world. We'll have candid conversations with VCs, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders grappling with our current challenges and providing solutions to key problems we face as a nation. I'm Jim Beer, president of CMBG Advisors. This podcast brings change makers to the table to discover the inner workings behind their decision-making strategies and ultimately to how they got to where they are today.
1: The reality is like everything is always available for disruption all the time i don't care what your background was we're looking for people who break the mold for people who do big exciting things who set great massive aspirational goals for themselves and are realistic about what it's going to take to actually build a company that has an impact it's going to take a lot of hard work it's going to take a lot of sleepless nights if you're willing to commit to that you've got a pretty good chance of building a successful company and we want to help you do so
0: On this episode of The Puck, we talk with Tyler Norwood, a managing partner at Antler, one of the most successful early stage global investment firms operating today. Tyler shares his unique journey into venture capital, developing his entrepreneurial skills while creating marketplaces in Southeast Asia, and his commitment to finding exceptional founders with a focus on assembling strong, innovative teams. Tyler Norwood, we are excited to have you here at The Puck today, and as the managing partner at Antler, why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to Antler.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, Jim, a lot. I'm really excited to be here. I grew up all over the U.S. My dad was a salesman entrepreneur, so I lived in 14 different houses from birth to going to college. So I got a, a master's degree in being the new kid in school. I think that nature versus nurture, I was probably born with most of the personality that I have, but it was really reinforced to always be the new kid and and learn how to integrate into a new group of people and experience that and i went to school in western north carolina appalachian state which is a sort of tier two business school i really loved the mountains and cu boulder was too expensive out of state so appalachian state was the closest i could get to the mountains and i absolutely loved it there it was great i got a really great education made a lot of amazing friends and then i remember i went to career fair my senior year and there was banks insurance companies. And that was it. And I remember I left there and I went straight to my counselor's office and had like an existential crisis. I was like, if I spent the last four years trying to get a job at a banker insurance company, like I wasted my time. I don't know what I'm doing here. I, I can't do this. I'm not doing any of these jobs. We got to talk about something else. And she said, well, you know, I do a trip to Vietnam every year with some students. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, hundred percent. I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to go on the trip. I'm going to move to Vietnam. I was just going to stay there. So when you guys leave, I'm staying in Vietnam. I'm just going to go on an adventure. So long story short, the day I graduated, walked across the stage, went home, got on a flight, flew to Ho Chi Minh City, and I ended up spending four years in Vietnam. So I backpacked around Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, and then decided that Ho Chi Minh City was sort of the most exciting place that I had been through that group. So I landed in Ho Chi Minh City, I think with $1,000 in my pocket. And I, I told myself the only rule is I can't go home because I can't make it. So if I want to go home, it's because I want to go home. I can't leave here because I can't cut it. I sort of set off a challenge for myself. So I got to figure out a way to survive here. So I started teaching English at like four different English centers and living in a air-conditioned room in the red light district for, I think it was $7 a week and just started meeting people and hanging out and having fun. And experiencing the culture and learning the language. And long story short, I ended up after a year and a half of doing random teaching jobs and sort of scraping by with enough money to eat and drink beer, joining Rocket Internet. So I got an opportunity to join Zalora, which is one of the fashion e-commerce companies inside of Rocket Internet's ecosystem. I knew the managing partner at that time and he told me, hey, I'm working on this marketplace project. I don't really have any idea what it's all about, but if you want to come on and take a crack at it, I'd be happy to have you. So I jumped on launched a marketplace essentially like they wanted to take inventory business and move it over to a marketplace. They said that the thing that's killing our business is all these clothes sitting in a warehouse you know dying on the shelf. So we want to actually have suppliers sell through our website and we don't hold any inventory. So, you know, I sat down with a pen and a piece of paper and tried to figure out how to do this. And Eight months later, I had a team and close to 30% of the total revenues of the group were now going through this marketplace business model, which we were like doing manually. Like everything was manual, it was all duct tape and bubble gum together, but it was a huge success. So Zalora, we had operations in seven countries because of the success in Vietnam. Magnus, who's the CEO of Antler, who I work with today building Antler, he was the CEO of Zalora at that time. He said, we need to launch this across Southeast Asia. So we built a team. And launched it across the whole region, so that I was like traveling around Southeast Asia, getting to experience all these new cities and new countries. I was actually making a salary that I could live on and could, you know, get my own apartment with air conditioning. And then Zalora got bought; and it got rolled up into Global Fashion Group, which was at the time the largest fashion e-commerce company in the world, is three point two billion dollar valuation at roll up. And Magnus was promoted to the COO of that group. He pulled me along one of the key initiatives for the group, which is five companies with operations in 21 countries, was to launch Marketplace across the entire group. And and Zalora was the only of those five companies that had Marketplace. So Magnus pulled me up and tapped me and said, hey, let's take this team. Let's launch all of these Marketplaces. So I spent a year and a half working on that. And Global Fashion Group ended up IPOing in Frankfurt. And all that happened over the course of like four and a half years. So I went from like, Living in the slums of Ho Chi Minh City, teaching English to you know, flying to Moscow, flying to Berlin, flying to Australia, working on you know this massive fashion e-commerce company, and being sort of an internal expert on a marketplace. So I call that my real-world MBA. It took me four years instead of two, uh, but I think I got probably ten years of experience throughout that journey. So then quickly I. I was really burned out after that. I took a break. I moved to Colorado. I spent a year full-time as an athlete training for Ironman. So I ran marathons, did Ironman, just took a break and said, "Hey, I got to give my mind a break, but I still want to do something really hard." So I did that. And then right after my race in Boulder, Magnus called me and said, "Hey, remember that VC idea we were talking about? I've got the team, I've got the money. We need to launch it. Come back to Singapore and help me build it." So Early 2018, I moved back to Singapore and Magnus, myself, and four other people launched Antler in early 2008. And then, you know, the last four and a half years I've been part of building Antler from the five of us in an office to, you know, we now have 14 funds, 23 cities that we operate in across the world. We've invested in more than 500 companies on every continent in the world. And I now run the US. So I'm the managing partner for all of our US operations. So that brings us to today, me sitting here. <laughs>
0: No, and that's crazy. And you know, a lot of people when they think of venture capital, they think of Silicon Valley, yeah, and kind of the traditional way of funding companies and so forth. But I love the way you started out and basically throwing your backpack over the wall and going to Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah. So as we're sitting here today, you know, one of the things that I know about you and Antler is that you've done something unique by bringing people together into your programs and helping young entrepreneurs find each other can you tell us a little bit about that and how that fits into what antlers mission is
1: definitely so magnus and i worked together for a long time and one of the things that we saw happen over and over again is really strong people that we worked with by the way to give a little context so rocket had multiple operations in southeast asia zelora lazada which was purchased by alibaba were the two biggest but you also had food panda like a bunch of random other stuff Almost every unicorn to date in Southeast Asia has at least one founder who came from one of those companies. So what we saw is like, for better or worse, and, you know, Rocket Internet, I'm very aware of Rocket Internet's reputation. Some people love it, some people hate it, and I think it's all deserved. But the one thing you can't argue with is, aside from the direct impact of those companies within the regions, the secondary and tertiary impact of all of the founders that came out of that ecosystem was huge and what we saw is two things one is really strong people would meet inside of this workspace and they would identify each other as like high achievers inside of it's like a high achieving culture and then within that you're like the high achievers of the high achievers and they would leave and go build a company together and be very successful so finding who they wanted to work with was the beginning of the value creation that was the inception of like all the success that they had was that they met each other and knew that they wanted to work together but we'd also see as people would leave by themselves. And they would go out into the world and say, all right, I'm going to build an amazing company. And if they hadn't yet found who they wanted to work with and who they wanted to build with, they would really struggle. So it was like, we'd see really awesome people who were like, man, I know they would be an amazing entrepreneur because of how effective they were within Rocket. But then they would go and it would take them like a year, a year and a half to like get things off the ground and raise capital and find their co-founding team, et cetera. So number one, we very strongly believe that Against what I think the startup zeitgeist says right now, which is come up with a great idea, build a team, take it to market. I actually think in practice, what we see in the real world is the opposite order is much more effective. And the best companies are almost always built opposite, which is great team first. And then that team figures out what are we uniquely positioned to build, right? Like, what you know, if Jim, you and I decided to build a company? We'd sit down and say like, well, where do our Venn diagrams of interest and skills, et cetera, overlap? And if we build inside of that space, by default, we're probably one of the best teams in the world who are trying to solve problems in that space. And that's a huge advantage. So That's giving us a huge head start on actually getting a company on the ground. So the first thing is like we very fundamentally believe that building a team first is a much more effective way to build startups. And then we asked ourselves, well, okay, how are people meeting co-founders then? And this is what we talked about, you know, earlier. I think the problem that we identified is there's not really any formal institution for people to say, I want to be a startup founder, I want to build a company, and I want to start by finding somebody that I really want to build with. There's nowhere for founders to go to do that. There are proxies, right? And those proxies are universities, right? Either undergrad, you know, founders shared a dorm together, like the Facebook story, which is totally serendipitous and sort of luck of the draw. Or people go and pursue like an MBA or a master's degree in something and say like, well, I'm actually going to meet my co-founder. I just want to go meet the smartest people I can and try to find a co-founder. It's like, oh, that's a pretty pricey way to try to find a co-founder. And then the other proxy institutions being used is like employers, right? So you hear a lot of stories of like, well, we work together at so-and-so. We work together at McKinsey. We work together at Google we identified and built a relationship of being high achievers within that organization. Then we left together and decided to start a company. So the question is, is like, aside from those two things, if a founder says, well, neither of those have happened for me, I want to find a co-founder because I agree with, you know, the thinking that I just discussed, which is having a strong team first is a much better way to start a company. There's nowhere for founders to go. You know, they go through their personal network and what ends up happening is you have this like horrible adverse selection problem, which, I go through my network or I start cold outreaching people on LinkedIn. And instead of finding somebody that I share interest with and has complimentary skills, actually the number one criteria of who my co-founder would be is actually like who's available. It's like, well, I asked the 10 closest people I have and I ended up working together with this person because they were the only person who agreed to quit their job and work with me. And it's like, well, that's not the number one criteria I'd use to select a co-founder. And so what we saw is a gap in the market where we felt that it was an appropriate time. And I can talk about like the system constraints of innovation as a whole, but we felt like it was an appropriate time to focus on building an institution, which is specifically focused on giving founders a place to say, I want to start a company. I want to do it by first building a really strong team and us coming up with an idea together. And Antler is now a place for founders to go to do exactly that. And on the back of that, we've built all the infrastructure that founders are used to, which is we have a fund. We do write checks into founders. We you know have all of the accoutrement that any early stage VC is going to have in terms of funding and support and coaching and networking, community, et cetera. But what we have that's very unique is the Founder Studio, which is a place for founders to go be surrounded by 40 to 50 of the best, brightest, most highest achieving people that we can find and find a co-founder that they really wanna build with.
0: When you're talking about in the world of accelerators or incubators where infrastructure is provided, would you say that one of your differentiators is that you are this founder studio, that you're unique in that you bring people together to actually build a team as opposed to giving them the infrastructure?
1: Yeah, for sure. The traditional incubator accelerator that business model was built in a time where access to capital and raising capital was still like a massive constraint, right? There wasn't a whole lot of great firms out there and they weren't writing checks as aggressively as we've seen over the past five years. And so their value proposition when they were first started was much different because what they were saying is essentially, well, we'll give you whatever it is, a hundred to $200,000 to give you a little bit more runway. And then we'll actually help you get to a place where you're ready to go out and pitch a real VC. And Oh, by the way, Of the 20 VCs in the United States who are actually worth taking a check from, we know most of them. So we'll introduce you, we'll help you raise your round, et cetera. 10 years ago, that was an amazing value proposition, right? Because there were tons of teams who had good businesses and just didn't know how to navigate this fairly nascent venture capital world. It was a new asset class. It was sort of the wild west. There wasn't a whole lot of awareness and education around it. And so the accelerator model, I think, was helping solve that problem. Like we'll help make you ready to go out and actually interact with VCs this is a small world of mostly coastal VCs. Right. Now, fast forward today, we've gone from maybe like 20 firms that are worth taking money from to a thousand firms, maybe more, just in the US alone that are worth taking money from. So I very firmly believe that like capital is no longer the system constraint, right? If you have a great team, you have a company that is capital efficient, that is solving a real problem for a very specific customer set. And you have, you know, your wits about you in terms of you kind of understand the trends that you're following and you understand how to grow and scale that business. There's thousands of firms that you could raise from that you'd be very well off. They're good investors. They know what they're doing. They have capital to allocate, et cetera. And so I think today, the traditional incubator accelerator, which is like, you already have a team, you already have a business. We're just going to help you fundraise. I generally don't think it's as valuable as it used to be because if you already have a team and you already have a good business, I think that if you really are going to build a VC scalable business, you should be able to navigate that with the amount of choice there is out there and how much more accessible VC is than it was 10 years ago. So for us, we sort of go upscale to say, well, then if capital is no longer the system constraint, then what is the system constraint? That's what we talked about is I really do think it's co-founder matching. It's like strong teams forming. So one of the big complaints that I think the general market has right now with venture capital is like, oh, like VC is still an insider's game. They throw these massive amounts of money at huge valuations at these teams that don't have anything. They don't have a real business or business in that capital efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And while that's true, I agree with the criticism. I don't agree with the first principle though. I think that what people don't understand is that the reason VCs are doing that, the reason why huge checks are being thrown is because there is a shortage of really strong teams. There's so much venture capital money in the market right now, even with whatever we're in right now, recession, a downturn, a correction, whatever it is. You know that, you know, VC money is constricting. There's still hundreds of billions of dollars of money looking to come into the private markets, and it's not going anywhere. There's not another asset that's outperforming venture right now. So the reason why we're seeing this—I don't know if you want to call it deplorable—but behavior of big checks being written, et cetera, is because there's a shortage of teams. Right? It's like, look, when a VC sees a great team, they're like, "Hey, Jim and Tyler, for whatever reason, decided to build a company together, and they've got a pretty good understanding of where they could be operationally excellent. And They really understand the market that they're going into, and they have track record of being really good operators. That is a dream for a venture capital firm. You don't run across that very often. So when you do, we see there's thousands of firms now and a bunch of them are going to throw money and that's going to drive the valuation up and that's going to make it really competitive, et cetera. And so what we want to do is try to solve the build a really strong team problem. Again, going back to like, that's only really happening serendipitously on college campuses and within employers. We want to create a place where people can say, no, I want to start a company. I want to form a really strong team. Great. There's now a place that's dedicated to doing that. And by the way, it doesn't cost you 150 grand like an MBA does. Right? And you don't have to go and work for two and a half years inside of Google to try to find that right person and then convince them to leave Google with you. Say, no, everybody here is the best and brightest that we can find. They've already committed full time to building a company and they are also here to try to find a co-founder. And I think that if we can increase the amount of great teams that are electing to become entrepreneurs and to build companies... And we can match that with the amount of demand there is from all the venture capital dollars for great teams who are building companies. I actually think that, well, I do think that there has been a VC bubble, but a bubble is generally, you know, some out of whack supply and demand. So I see two potential outcomes of like the venture capital bubble. Number one is, The amount of venture capital dollars that are being deployed stays similar to where it is right now. And we don't really fundamentally increase the amount of great teams that are being formed, in which case the bubble will collapse, right? Because it's like, there's just not enough great teams for this money to go after. And so valuations are skyrocketing. There's not actually enough intrinsic value to back those valuations up. Or the future that I imagine and that we're committed to helping build is if we can catch the amount of great teams that are coming out to market and saying, we want to solve a problem in this space, in this space, in this space, in this space. If we can catch that up to the amount of dollars that want to invest into venture backable companies, I actually think you can stabilize the whole asset class. And so then instead of a bubble, you just have massive growth in the amount of innovation that's happening in a sustainable way, right?
0: Again, I think that makes sense. And you know, part of what makes entrepreneurs successful is that they kind of are able to adapt depending on the challenge. And as you said, whether or not we're in a recession or otherwise, we're definitely in a different environment right now. And so having the ability to adapt and have a good team, you're going to stand out when you're out there trying to raise money.
1: 100%. If you can build a strong team, right? Like If you build a strong team, you're already way ahead. You're already really competitive to go out and raise the dollars you need to build a big company.
0: Yeah, and I think to bring this down for our listeners, especially for entrepreneurs who are looking for money or kind of deciding whether or not they want to go out there and jump in, so to speak, to demystify it, I think there is this perception that you have to have a great idea, and then if you have that great idea and you just get it in front of somebody, they're going to invest. And the reality is that it's less complicated than that. VCs look to track records like first draft picks. And if you've come out of a Google, or if you've had a successful exit, they then kind of know, oh, this person can execute. And therefore I'm going to put the money there and help them take that good idea and quote unquote, and build it into something. You're helping create that ecosystem by allowing people to put a team together so that when they go and pitch that concept to a VC, the VC realizes, wow, this team really gels. They play well together. There's some synergy there. And I think that's just a very creative approach to this.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think I'm like really, massively fighting against this concept. Like you said, it's like, it's not, I really don't want us to continue developing out this startup culture and world around like, I just need to come up with a great idea and then everything will solve itself. It's like, no, that's not really the way to do it. It's like, you could take the game plan of the 96 bulls and give it to 10 teams right and all 10 teams would still lose right because they don't have the players they don't have mj they don't have scotty they don't have rodman what matters is not the strategy that pursued it's the team that they built right the team that phil built and that gave them the option to pursue many different strategies because they had the raw talent and i think founders should think about it more in terms of really good VCs, like the type of VCs that founders want to work with, I think all agree that mainly what I'm betting on is you as a team, because the reality is, especially at an early stage, pre-seed, even at seed, whatever you're pitching right now is not the end business, right? Either what you're pitching me right now ends up being your first business. And for us to build this into something really big, you have to decide what's the next business we build on top of that? There's going to be a bunch of businesses built on top and around that, et cetera. Or, and by the way, statistically, that's not very likely. What's more likely is whatever you pitched in the beginning, when you go out to the market and you start working with customers and really starting to understand how things work on the ground, you realize that like your original idea wasn't actually the right idea. And you end up pivoting and changing. And that's what good VCs are ultimately betting on is, I'm betting on you as a team to be able to go and figure out where does this business actually land in the real world? Because there's a big difference between your idea and an actual business. An idea is subjective, right? You and I could subjectively say whether or not it's a good idea. And I think a lot of people get obsessed with like, oh, Tyler said this was a good idea. And I tell founders all the time. It doesn't matter if I think it's a good idea. It's totally subjective. My opinion is not any better than anybody else's. What's not subjective is building a real business because you have to go out and face the real world and the real world will tell you whether it's a good business or not. That is purely objective. And I think what founders would do really well to internalize is what good VCs are betting on is the objective ability to go out and build a great business. You can't lie your way around building a great business. You're either doing it or you're not and the market will tell you. Yeah. And so, you know, that goes back and sort of dovetails back to, Focusing on building a great team. Because the other thing I'll say too, and I see founders fall in this trap all the time. They come up with an idea. I say, hey, I want to build a media company. So I'm going to go hire who I think is the right people for this media company. And then what ends up happening is I go to market and the market doesn't like my first business. It's like whatever way I try to get in doesn't work. It's not working. And so two things happen. One is I like stubbornly continue to bang my head against the wall and I run the business out of money and it explodes and ends because I'm unwilling to adapt to what the market's telling me. Or two, is I pivot, You know, I'm listening to my customers and I'm saying, hey, I thought we should do A, but actually customers want B and there's a business there that they'll pay us for. You switch over to B and then you realize this is totally the wrong team for B. I hired a team to build A and now I have the wrong team for B. And at that point, you might as well be dead, right? So then the story goes, takes some a long, abstracted process of the founder trying to unwind The incorrect team and founders arguing and sue each other and hurt feelings etc etc either way is a bad outcome if you build your team first on first principles which is hey jim i want to work with you because i like you i respect you i think we have shared interest in some areas and i think we have complementary skill sets let's work together and come up with an idea the fact that you've built a team based on that foundation makes us much more adaptable to the pivots that are inevitably going to come because If you and I sit down and say, hey, we thought A was the right idea, but actually B is the right idea, when we switch over to B, the reason why we're working together is still intact. We didn't decide to work together because of A specifically, so I think we're just as well positioned to build B together. Let's do it. And so I think it makes the company much more resilient for the reality of building a business, which is having to go out and face the objective truth of the market either wanting or not wanting what you're building and having to adapt accordingly.
0: So... When somebody comes and goes through your program, they do have this opportunity to meet other people. Yeah. But in terms of knowing that they've got the right team and having some objective world feedback to that, do you help them determine whether or not there is this energy there that they're looking for?
1: I would say yes and no. Like, so I'll caveat this with, I want to make sure people understand. Cause a lot of people, I was like, oh, how do you match founders? And they're always like, we don't match founders. Our job is to create an environment where you can come in and meet a hundred times more qualified people who are ready to build a company right now than you would be reaching out to people cold on LinkedIn. That's what we're focused on doing. The process of you deciding who you want to work with, that's totally up to you. There's no magic algorithm. I'm I'm not the right person to decide who you want to spend the next seven years building a company with. I'm just here to create an environment where you have a much better chance of finding the right person. So I would say, yes, we can help steer founders in the right direction. And I say the most effective way you can do that is just like asking really hard questions up front. So saying like, hey, it seems like you guys don't want to talk through these things. So I'm just going to ask you straight up, why do you guys want to work together? seems like you guys have a very similar skill set. How are you complementary to each other? How are you going to solve X, Y, Z? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? Blah, blah, blah. Fine. But we try not to super overemphasize that because what's more important is the founders having confidence that both of them are committed to, hey, we have shared interests. We respect each other. We share values, but we also have complementary skill sets. And I think really, truly the only way for that decision to be made is by the founders. You know, They have an internal compass. And I think it's very much gut based of like, no, I feel good about working with Jim. I've gotten to know him. I like him. I, I respect him. And, and I think we built something really great together. And I'm willing to commit to, hey, there's going to be hard times. We're going to have to have tough conversations through this process. But I'm willing to commit to doing that because both of us really want to build a successful company. together. It's the magic of the human context and intelligence, I guess.
0: You got me thinking back to like, for instance, when I went to law school and you had study groups or when people in MBA school have teams that they work with, it's not like you're assigned partners. You typically go out and you put those groups together. And as you said, because it's your intuition and everything else, so that, that makes total sense. And then again, what's unique about what you're doing is instead of going to UCLA MBA program to meet somebody, which is a great way to do it, you're giving them an alternative. And let's talk about it. You also provide capital, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of the important part for us is like solving the finding your co-founder problem is only step one. Once you do that, there's a bunch of other things that you need to do to get to seed round raise. So the way we think about it is like, we want to create a better on-ramp to successfully raising seed capital. Seed capital is arguably the largest inflection point in a company's life, despite it seeming so early. But statistically, here in the US, if you raise a million dollars of seed capital, your chance of building a billion-dollar company goes to one in 100, which is huge. That's massive, right? I would argue that pre-seed, your chances of building a billion-dollar company are probably one in 10,000, maybe one in 100,000, at least in order of magnitude less than one in 100. And so Our goal is like if we can help build a better on ramp to seed, right? And make it a more accessible, more fluid, more enjoyable process for founders, then we can build a lot more successful companies as an economy, right? We can help empower entrepreneurship to be a career choice for many, many more people and not just for those with means and access to, you know, friends and family money or inheritance or whatever it is, and ultimately drive forward innovation. I mean, I'm a big believer in the free market, and I think that the most effective way we as a society have to solve problems is free enterprise, is having people who are willing to commit to building a company that has incentives to solve a problem for customers. And those customers are people, you know, it's like other businesses or consumers. And so I think the more fuel we can pour on that fire of innovation, even real innovation, true innovation, right? The better. The better everyone's quality of life becomes, the more access to services and goods that everybody has, the more efficient the economy will operate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So sorry, to come back to your question, we wanted to build that whole suite. So our sort of key differentiator is we want to start at finding your co-founder, but where we want to end is you successfully raise the seed round. So we do incorporate all of the things that a traditional accelerator and incubator offer But we start at a much different place where you think there's more friction in the market than starting it. You already have a team. You already have an idea. You have some traction. We'll just help you do the last final piece to raise your seed round and take 10% 10% to do that. We say, no, if we're going to take 7 to 10% of your company, we want to help you build your team. We want to help you decide what space do you want to build in. We want to help you figure out what your first business is and validate that with real customers. We want to give you the funding that you need to build your first product. And then we want to help you go out and actually run the fundraising process, which by the way, very under discussed, but like fundraising is a very specific skill set. And one thing that we see happen a lot is The founders are great. They're super smart. They're thinking in first principles. They're executing well. They've got the beginnings of what could be a really successful business. And it's like, all right, great. Now we need to go raise a seed round, and they sort of fall flat on their face. It's like, look, I fundraise, right? Be transparent. I raised the fund for Antler. I fundraise sort of full time. I have no firsthand. It is a very specific skill set. What ends up happening is the founders they start the fundraise process, and then one or more of the founders spends like six months not really being able to work on the business because they're so over encumbered by the fundraising process. And they end up getting in this trap, which is like, well, VCs want to see traction, but we don't really have that good of traction because I'm not really that focused on the business because I'm fundraising. But because I'm fundraising is why the traction is not good. And they get in this like death spiral, and then it's like eight months later, the company's dead. And so the final piece of our value proposition is we want to take you all the way to, look, the reality is, is the founders are 90% of being able to raise a seed round. I can't find product market fit for you. You have to go out and find your customers and find the value proposition that works and prove that you can build a solution that they're willing to pay for. If you can do that, I, and I say I royally, we, Antler, have a dedicated team that can help you through the fundraising process, building your materials, doing pitch practice, building your investor CRM, getting interest to the right VCs. also we sort of think about this anti-demo day process of like demo day worked again 10 years ago when there was 20 worthwhile investors and you could invite them all to a room, have everybody pitch to them and then the best select the best. I think demo day is like overdone now and it's like the noise to signal ratio is way off. And so what we think about is sort of the anti-demo day. It was like, hey, instead of pitching 100 VCs and hoping for one to say yes, let's go find the 10 VCs who don't have a competitive investment, invest in your sector, invest at your stage, and let's make a warm intro to them. Like let's massively increase your yes rate so that you can spend a lot less time out getting nos. The reality is, you know, you hear founders say like, "Oh yeah, fundraising is so hard. I got a hundred no's and one yes." And it's like, "Yeah, but maybe fifty of those no's you could have not done because they had a competitive investment, or they don't invest in your sector, they don't invest in your stage." Right. So let's clean all that up because that's a huge waste of your time when you should be focused on building the company. So that's like the end point. Once one of our portfolio companies raises seed, that's where we consider like our studio service as concluded formally and then we become like any of your other investors right we're there you can call us at any time we're there to help we obviously understand that founders continue to need support and guidance but we're not meeting on a weekly basis anymore you're not participating in town hall and updating on what's going on you've got more important fish to fry which is like you now have three million dollars of seed capital that you need to go build your company with so call me when you need something i'm always here to help but like you don't need to talk to me on a weekly basis you got more important things to do now
0: so tyler In the US today, as you said, you're responsible for the entire country. When you want to apply to your program, are you applying from all the different 50 states? And then are you bringing these people together virtually or do they actually come to a particular location?
1: Yeah, so it's in person. So we very much believe in in person. I think ultimately starting a company is a mostly creative process. And I don't think creativity flows well online. And so, yeah, we do have in-person offices. We do require founders to come in person and work together. We think that you know, that's where all the magic happens. And look, the reality is, is like, if you're not willing to come and work in person for six weeks. And I'm probably not super excited to invest in you in building a startup. If you can even call it a sacrifice, I don't think it's a sacrifice. Like you're surrounded by all these amazing people. There's an amazing community. So for anyone who's skeptical about that piece, I think it's actually one of the best parts of the program is you get to come spend time with all these amazing human beings and be a part of, uh, a community that's really strong and really additive to everyone who's a part of it. So right now we have New York, Austin, Denver. And so those are regional offices. And you know, for founders who apply all over the country, they can sort of choose which of those locations they want to go to. Over the next two to three years, we want to launch Miami. We want to launch LA, Boston, Seattle, Chicago. So we want to continue to open up regional hubs and get on average closer and closer to founders all over the country. That's sort of one of our big pushes for the future too, is like, we want to help bring venture capital and access to venture capital. And ultimately, like, maybe not just venture capital, I want to bring access to entrepreneurship as a realistic career choice to more people across the country. I don't believe in a future where like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to move to Silicon Valley and deal with the cost of living and the competition and sort of all of the accoutrement that goes with that. If you want to, that's great. I don't have any problem with that. But I know that there's a lot of people out there that don't want to do that. And so we want to build a geographic footprint across the U.S. where there's an Antler location within 250 miles of where you are and where you want to build your company that you can go to, find your co-founder, to figure out the space you want to build in, to decide on what your first business into the market is and who your first customers are, validate that, receive funding, work on finding product market fit, go out with us and raise your seed. and From there, decide if you want to stay in our office. We have a lot of portfolio companies who continue to work inside of our office. But, you know, if you want to move back to Wichita, great, it's fine. If you feel like that's the right place to build your business, we're on board.
0: Are there prerequisites to getting into your program? I mean, do you have to have a college degree? Do you have to have an MBA? No. What requirements, if any, do you have to get into it?
1: No, I think we have three founders in our summer batch right now, like across the hall from me that only graduated from high school so you don't need a college degree there's a couple of like hygiene factors you have to be able to legally work in the united states i won't get into my thoughts on the current immigration policies in the united states but you have to be able to legally build a company here and work here and operate here right i will say like we have helped founders get o-1 visas but the founder needs to be pretty far down that process where like a letter of recommendation and your participation in the antler will help your application and, and you'll receive a visa to successfully work in the U.S. Unfortunately, we don't have the capacity and the red tape and bureaucracy are just too complicated and hard to understand right now for us to have you know, foreigners relocate to the U.S. to participate in the program. So number one is you have to be a citizen, have a working visa, have a green card in the U.S. Number two is you have to be committed full time. Look, ultimately, like this is not summer camp, right? We're not doing this for charity. You know, we're not doing this to feel good about ourselves. We are doing this to help founders who are serious about building real businesses to do so. And if a founder can't commit to pursuing this full-time, then we're unfortunately not willing to support them at that stage. And there's no judgment around that, right? If you're not ready to take the leap, like by all means, right? Wait until you feel ready. But for us, what we found is working with founders who are part-time, it just doesn't work. Like we want to work with founders who are like ready to go full speed and really pursue this and commit I think in the beginning, all of Founder can really commit to starting a startup is their time. And if you're not willing to commit all the time you have to doing so, then unfortunately, it's not the right place for you. So that's the second requirement. That's really it. I mean, you have to be willing to come in person. So if you're not in New York, Austin, or Denver, you need to be willing to come to one or multiple of those locations for the six weeks. It's really important for us from a community perspective and also a decision-making perspective to be able to work together. Aside from that, I mean, we have college dropouts, we've got engineers from SpaceX, we've got a former CIA analyst. I mean, we have people all across the board, all sorts of backgrounds and experience sets and everything. And that's one of the things that I think is really special is also breaking this mold of like, look, it's not 40 Stanford engineers sitting in a room staring at each other, right? We do believe that the future of entrepreneurship and the future of innovation is also kind of taking a step back and saying like, hey... If we continue to invest the same way into the same type of founders, we're going to continue to just get the same stuff. So, we also want to expand the reach and invest more diverse geographically, more diverse demographically, more diverse from a background perspective to say, like, look, I don't care what you did before you decided to be an entrepreneur. I don't need you to have a degree in CS or be a whiz at computer coding. That's great. If you are a whiz at computer coding, great. Let's build a company that's core. Competency is being able to write really amazing code. But if you don't have that, then let's build a company which core competency is on something that you're really good at. Because, you know, I fundamentally believe that every corner of the economy is ripe for disruption all the time. There is this sense that the trends that everybody gets excited about are the only areas that are available for disruption. And I could talk forever about why VC gets caught in this trap of like hyping up specific industries every year and then switching and switching and switching. But the reality is like everything is always available for disruption all the time. And so like, I don't care what your background was. I'm not looking for just people who want to build web three companies or just computer coders or just McKinsey graduates. I'm looking for anyone who's willing to commit full time has a background of excellence, right? And the definition of that varies depending on what you've done, but we're looking for people who break the mold, for people who do big, exciting things, who set great, massive, aspirational goals for themselves and are realistic about what it's going to take to actually build a company that has an impact, which is like, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of sleepless nights. If you're willing to commit to that, you've got a pretty good chance of building a successful company and we want to help you do so.
0: Yeah, you know, a couple of thoughts. I mean, there's a lot of talk with young entrepreneurs about kind of this work life balance. And one of the things that I think people need to focus on is realism, which is that going back to your Chicago Bulls analogy, you're competing against other companies where these people are working 24 7. And so the reality is you can look for balance, but at the same time, as you said, you got to be practical about it and work full-time. So I love that, which is you're being practical about it in terms of if you want to be successful, you got to know what your competition is. The other thing I, I wanted to come back to is I recently interviewed Sir Paul Collier because one of the things we do at The Puck is we're looking at where the world is going and how kind of technology and technology leaders can be part of solving some of the global issues we're dealing with today. And what's wonderful about what you are doing is that we have underserved communities. Yeah. And you're allowing people to come from anywhere in the country yeah. to kind of get access to capital, access to talent, and then they can go back to their communities and actually build a company. And that is so important if we're gonna deal with some of the income inequality yeah. and the lack of access. So I, I applaud you for doing that. And again, Sir Paul Collier, I mean, he challenges the technology community to do what you're doing. He's saying, look, we've got to put something back. And create these communities, or the world is just going to blow up.
1: No, for sure. Everyone needs to move forward together. And if the gap between the front of the line and the back of the line gets too large, then everybody comes crashing down together. Right. So I do believe in that. And I think I like the way you put it, right? Which is like, it's not about charity, right? It's not about setting up systems that don't have real incentives to be sustainable. I think it's about giving everybody the same economic opportunity. I mean, the biggest thing that I see is representation of problem sets. So like the over-indexing of backing founders in the coastal area, in New York and California, right? I've lived in New York. Anyone who says living in the coast is not a bubble is crazy. It doesn't take very long to live in New York to think that, and you really do feel it when you live in New York, like this is the center of the world. Our problems are everybody's problems. You end up just feeling in... Like every atom that you have that New York is just the whole world. The whole world is just like New York and all the problems that you're facing in New York are the problems that everybody else is facing. And the reality is it's not true, right? Uh, but it's a very difficult human bias to overcome. I don't think you're necessarily going to overcome that bias. Like you're not going to convince people who die hard live in New York and will never, ever leave to change the way they think about that. And the way that affects is you have like this over indexing of problem set. So it's like you back so many founders from these coastal regions, New York, California, et cetera, and they bring up the same problems, right? It's like grocery delivery. Okay, I get it. Grocery delivery is a huge problem in New York and San Francisco. Totally get it. Anyone who's lived in those cities understands how inconvenient it is to try to go out and get groceries in New York, right? I always have nightmares of like carrying 25 pounds of bags, you know, seven blocks back to my flat and walking up the stairs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, okay, great. There's a really good explanation for why we keep getting all these like super fast grocery delivery companies. Because it's like, that's a problem set. That's people's real problem that they're trying to solve better and better. The problem is, is like, it doesn't represent a very vast portion of the actual population. The Reality is like most of the United States from a geographic perspective have absolutely no problem getting groceries. And it's very convenient. You walk into an H-E-B, you buy groceries, you roll your car to your car, you put them in your car, you drive home. Austin, Texas does not need seven minute grocery delivery. And so when I talk about representation of problem sets, it's like what we need is to create accessibility for people who come from different communities that have different problem sets than needing seven minute grocery delivery and giving them the tools and the support and the foundation to say, well, actually, the problem that's faced in my community is XYZ. I think it's funny because you hear a lot of times you'll have founders come from underrepresented communities and you know they'll pitch an idea that's very specifically focused on their community and you'll hear VCs say like oh yeah but like how many people does that actually affect across the US and I'm like yeah but that's exactly what you should be asking about 7 minute grocery delivery it's the same problem you're just excited about it because you also live in New York and people are willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money for 7 minute grocery delivery it's always going to start off as a niche problem and you'll be able to continue to build solutions on top of that so Yeah, I think everyone in the United States would benefit by driving a car from New York to California and seeing how unrepresentative New York and California are of the, I don't know how long it would take you to drive across the United States, maybe 40 hours. 39 and a half of those hours are going to be nothing like New York and California. And it's important that we like accept that and start to build infrastructure to be able to solve a broader set of problems for a broader group of people.
0: So as we're moving into this Economy that's a little different than the last 10 years. Does that affect what you're doing in any way? I mean, do you think about how you're approaching these challenges any differently in this new economy?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately, I think like innovation is pretty separated from the macroeconomic environment. Like innovation trudges on regardless. Innovation fundamentally comes from a much different place than all the forces that affect the macroeconomy. I think if you boil it down to first principles, innovation comes from two things. One, there's a demand for things to be better, right? So there's sort of this infinite demand for improvements across all aspects of life and all corners of all the infrastructure that we live on, right? I could sit here and look at my window and say, I could point out 10 problems that somebody could solve, right? So that's the demand side. On the supply side is, you know, I think is one of the most exciting qualities that humans have. Humans have this desire to do things, right? And to seek meaning. And there is a lot of meaning in solving a problem, building a solution to a problem, like driving the world forward. That is, in my opinion, the engine of innovation. Neither of those things are affected by the macro economy. Yeah. The desire for humans to solve problems and the problems that we have in the world are not affected by the Federal Reserve at all. I think they are affected by education. They're affected by culture and accessibility, specifically on the supply side. The demand side, I think, is relatively unchanged. Things can get better or worse. But even when things are going really well, then I think what happens is like the people get used to things getting better faster. So the total demand for improvement doesn't actually change. But the supply side, I think, is heavily affected by education, right? Which is like, look, at the end of the day, you have to help educate people and give people the tools to actually be able to solve problems and build businesses effectively accessibility which is like building a business and solving a problem is actually a process of accumulating resources and applying them to the solution the reality is is those resources are not evenly accessible and then culture right which is one that we see right now i think we're at sort of a cultural peak of entrepreneurship but the culture very much affects like how cool is it to be an entrepreneur and we've probably overheated a little bit on culture to the point where we've got a lot of fake people who like quit their job just to write entrepreneur on their LinkedIn. And they're interested more in the social signal than they are in actually grinding to try to solve a problem. And right now we're in like this peak, you know, you have almost, I don't know, one out of five successful shows or podcasts or movies are about like startups, like startups have become very mainstream. And so culture, I think affects how many people ultimately pursue that as a career choice. So that was a really long answer to your question, which was, How does the current macro environment affect that? I don't think at all. And our business is really to drive forward innovation and there will always be money to be made in driving forward innovation. That's one of the things that powers the resources, right? So the money is one of the resources that fuels innovation, like I talked about. One of the reasons why money flows into innovation and continues to flow into the private markets is because it is very profitable to solve problems for the world. It's a great way to make money if you do it well. If you actually solve problems, it's a really good way to make money, and that's why there's so much money in the private markets. So, yeah, I mean, look, in terms of like my personal opinions, like I try not to read the news. Like it sort of bums me out. Ultimately, I don't think things are that bad. I think if you watch the media, though, it's very easy to fall into a trap of being very pessimistic about the future because all the media wants to talk about is like, oh, things are terrible, things are so bad. It's like, yeah, but you don't tell both sides of the story. Gas is back down to 350 a gallon in Texas, which Texas is generally a leading indicator of gas prices around the country. Lumber has gone down 75% over the last year. The jobs report in June, 275,000 new jobs reported in June. That was, I mean, I don't think they expected any new jobs in June. But You're not hearing, you're not seeing Twitter articles about that stuff where it's like, hey guys, like actually there's a couple good things that are happening. It's all bad stuff. Generally, I think things are better than they seem. Secondly, I think founders are really well served to just ignore all of that and focus on solving problems, creating value, you know, put your head down, build your company. The macro environment is the least of your worries when it comes to getting a company off the ground. If you're Google, then yes, you're affected by the macro economy because you have billions and millions of dollars of debt all over your balance sheet that's affected by interest rates, et cetera. If you're a startup with $150,000 of funding, the macro environment is probably past 100 on the list of things that you need to be worrying about. Generally, my message would be like, I don't want to encourage people to be overly optimistic. I think there are real problems to solve. But I think taking it as sort of a sense of duty of like, specifically my generation, you know, millennials, it's like, I very much look at it as like, all right, like we are now becoming the leaders of... The culture, we're becoming the leaders of the economy. Things are starting to shift to us. Like, it's our duty now to figure out how to solve these problems. This is our life's work that we're going to have to do as a generation. The problems are in front of us, and we need to figure out ways to solve them, just like every other generation. Jim, one thing I, I just wanted to go back quickly because you had mentioned like work life balance. Because I'm talking about generations, and I struggle with this, right? Because, like, I think especially my generation, and the younger generations, we're like inundated with this cultural. Conditioning of like work life balance and like you deserve this amazing life and you know you shouldn't have to work this hard and there should be three hour work days and this and that. Blah, blah blah. Two things that you said one is like you can pursue that, that's fine, but there are still people out there who are going to work really hard and they're going to get ahead. You know, ultimately you're going to be frustrated because it's like, well, why do they have all this stuff? And it's like because they're working hard because they're willing to work hard. Secondly, and I think like already some of your listeners have categorized me as like, oh, Tyler's on the side of like, we should just work and not enjoy life, blah, blah, And it's like, no, I'm not at all. Right. But the generational gap is like, take my job. I work 60, 70 hours a week. I would say I'm pretty high up on the scale of like, you know, I do struggle with work life balance. I do work a lot. But if you compare my life to two generations ago, even in my same family, like don't even change demographic groups or background or whatever it is. Like two generations ago, my life, which is considered pretty unbalanced in the modern day, I'm on cruise control. Like I am absolutely having the best life possible. Anybody two generations ago would die for the average unbalanced life. I really do think we're doing a disservice to people because a lot of this frustration with not having work-life balance, I don't actually think it's about balance. I think it's about attitude. It's like you just have a bad attitude about everything. Because like if you went two generations ago and talked to your great-great-grandparents and you said like, hey, you know what? I'm really frustrated. And you explained what your life was like. I can't imagine what the reaction would be. It's like they just went through the Great Depression, right? They grew up in a house with a dirt floor with straw on the bottom. It's like people don't understand that only two generations ago, almost the entire country was poor. And worked out in fields, right? And picked corn on their family's farm or topped tobacco. 15 cents of candy was a huge treat for them. That was most Americans two or three generations ago. So, what we complain about today about not having work life balance, like, I think it's crap. I think we're being fed this bad attitude by the media and we expect to have more but the reality is is like look part of life is you have to work hard and you got to figure out what you're working for maybe it's your family maybe it's yourself maybe it's because you want to have a big impact on the world like if you fix your attitude about it i think a lot more people would be a lot happier
0: it is a matter of perspective and we have washing machines we have dishwashers we have drones we have delivery stuff
1: exactly like refrigerators
0: I remember hearing about whether it's my grandparents or my parents saying that, you know, they walked three miles in the snow to get to school and now you're on Zoom or whatever. So (laughs) it is perspective. I agree with you. And part of what I do for a living is I help restructure companies that do go through tough times because there isn't always unlimited capital. And there is right now, but I think that is going to shift. Yeah, for sure. And it's amazing. So I meet a lot of entrepreneurs. It's unbelievable to me how. It's exactly what you started out with. If you have the right team, I don't care what you start out doing, you can pivot that team and be successful because you've got yeah. that entrepreneurial spirit and you know, you're you going to throw your backpack over the wall. We're going to get to the moon and you have that drive for success yeah. and nine times out of 10, you're going to get to the promised land. It's the people that kind of when they hit that, they fall off the horse. They don't realize you know, you've got to get back on and, and struggle a little. Grit, I think, is extremely important to being able to kind of survive these challenging environments.
1: I 100% agree. Part of our investment thesis is like, kind of what you said, that you say like, if you have a really great team, uh, you get this sense, especially people who work with companies. When you meet a really good team, there's this sense that like this team could build a lot of businesses successfully, right? Like you're not successful because of the specific idea. You're building, that's secondary to the fact that you have a really strong team and you could transplant this team into a lot of different businesses and they would be successful. They would find a way to make that business successful. So the inverse of that is a big part of our investment thesis and why we're willing to invest in founders so early is like, if you form a strong team and you're able to decide the sandbox that you want to work in, we apply that same lesson, which is like, you're a strong team. There's a lot of successful businesses you could build. We don't need a full pitch deck. We don't need revenue, right? We don't need all the accoutrement of the actual business because we do believe that based on the strength of the team you have and what we've seen over the six weeks that we've got to work together is that like you guys probably build a lot of successful businesses. And we wanna give you the money to go out to the market and actually figure out what business does the market want from you? And so it's exactly what you said, it's just the
0: inverse. So Tyler, this has been fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Thanks a
1: lot, Jim. It was really great to be here and I uh, really appreciate the conversation and look forward to chatting soon. Terrific. All right, cheers team.
0: Puck Venture Capital and Beyond is produced by CMBG Advisors. If you enjoyed the conversation and haven't subscribed yet to the show, you can find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook and let us know what you think about the podcast.